0: Colossians chapter 1. That lady sang of Jesus' name and gave so many different things that his name does, teaches. You say, does it really do all that? I mean, it's, 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 it's just a name. But we recall in Scripture when we speak of someone's name, when it says to believe on Jesus' name, it's not talking about believing on the five letters of his name. It's talking about believing on the person in work. A man's name in the scripture was indicative of everything that he was. When God says that his name is holy, his name is truth, his name is I am, he was describing his character. When God passed by Moses in the cleft of the rock and he declared his name and he said, the Lord, the Lord God, long-suffering and merciful, by no means clearing the guilty, he was describing himself and that was his name. And so when we think of the name of Jesus Christ, whether we think on believing on the name of Jesus Christ or declaring the name of Jesus Christ or, or when, when we think of the name of Jesus Christ, don't just think of the five letters that make up the name Jesus. We're talking about His person, His work, His truth claims, everything He was and everything He did. That is the Savior's name. Thank you ladies for reminding us of that. Colossians chapter 1 in your Bibles, please. Now, when I say the word church, what is it that comes to your mind? There's probably many things that come to the minds of many different people. We have many different backgrounds in this room as far as um, religious backgrounds and, and lifestyle backgrounds and such. So what comes to your mind when I say the word church? Now, there are many thoughts that could come to mind. Perhaps when you think of church, you think of a building such as this. You think of stained glass windows. You think of a piano, perhaps an organ, which uh, we do not have here, but many churches do. Maybe that's what you think of when you think of church. Perhaps when you think of church, you think of preaching and you think of singing and you think of uh, those elements of the church service that we conduct ourselves, that we engage in together. Maybe you think of evangelism. Maybe when you think of church, you think of door knocking. You think of Sunday school. You think of VBS. You think of uh, Bible studies. You think of um, Bible clubs, those sorts of things. Or perhaps you think of service opportunities. Maybe when you think of church, you think of soup kitchens, food shelters, prison ministries, and the like. You know, in the, in the New Testament, the word church, when you look at the Greek word that is translated church, it's the word ekklesia, and it simply means an assembly. It was used in the classical Greek to describe any number of gatherings. It didn't necessarily imply a gathering of Christians. It could have been a political gathering. It could have been some other religious gathering. The word simply meant assembly or gathering. Now, when we think about what the word actually is, church means assembly, we understand immediately what the church is. The church isn't buildings. The church isn't programs. The church isn't activities. The church is people. If you have an assembly, you have an ecclesia, the word that we have defined to be or translated to be church, an assembly of people. So we understand that the church is not a location. However, when you have an assembly of people, you must recognize that the church is has a location. It will contain locations. The church is not necessarily a structured set of religious this and that, but it will contain structure. It will be structured. Now, over the next three weeks in anticipation of chartering, as this church becomes an independent body of believers, uh, apart from some other body, we're going to do a mini-study, as it were, on the church. And we're going to look at the two distinct elements of the church as we see them presented in the New Testament. And then we're going to conclude in the third week with the believer's relationship to these elements of the church. Today we begin with what we at Legacy call the prospective church. You heard Brother Grismore call it the prospective church. Now, if you've ever read theology, you would know this better as the universal church, the universal church. When we talk about the universal church, we're talking about every born-again believer in every generation that will one day be assembled together in heaven. Now, there's a reason why we at Legacy don't like using the term universal church, and therefore we like to say prospective church instead. There has been a sect of religion that has errantly appropriated this term, universal church. They have, they have taken this term and they have used it in error to push a false doctrine. Now, this church is the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church, the word Catholic meaning universal, has taken this word universal or Catholic or all-encompassing and have used it to make false claims. Now, as the Church of Rome was forming many, uh, really uh, thousands of years ago, false theology confused the church as a body of believers with the church as an organization. They said that the organization is the body. Now, this led to the false expectation that a person must be a member of the church organization in order to be a member of the church, the body of believers. That means that they had to be a part of the church organization in order to be saved, in order to receive the blessings of salvation. Now to that end, the church organization became the standard by which a man obtained grace, and his standing in the eyes of the church organization dictated his standing before God. This is all wrong. We do not see it in scripture. It's not taught in the Bible that we are accountable to an organization for our standing before God. But as this church formed, they said, the church is one body. Therefore, one organization is one church. Therefore, the church is the mouthpiece of God. And therefore, the church has sway over man's ability to obtain grace and his standing before God. This has led to all sorts of problems. Now, this church was called the Catholic Church because it claimed to be the official representative body for God on this earth. The universal church. They claimed that they were the only and exclusive body of believers, the Catholic Church, that if you were not a part of the church, Catholic Church, then you were not a part of the church, the body of believers. You obtained grace through them. You obtain pardon through them. You obtain forgiveness of sins through them. You obtain fellowship with God through them. And it's all heresy. It's not in your Bible. You won't find it. You can't find it because it's not there. The idea of the Catholic Church claiming to be God's church has caused many, many problems and led many people astray. And to that end, we at Legacy Baptist Church are careful when we talk about the church as a universal church. Now you may know what I mean, and I may know what I mean, but the person listening to my sermon online may not know what I mean. And so I want to be very clear here that when I'm talking about the universal church, we call it the prospective church. This highlights the reality that the church is not fully assembled and will not be fully realized until every believer in Christ stands together before the throne of God. See, there's coming a day where you and I and all the believers ever since the, the day that, that uh, we would say the church began at Pentecost in this church and all the believers since the day that the Holy Spirit began indwelling will stand before God as one body and all those believers that are coming in the future but until the day that Jesus Christ comes again will stand before God in one body and that body is the church the body of Christ it's perspective it's in the future we look for it we see it we know it's there but it's not fully assembled yet so we call it the perspective church If you want to label it as the universal church, that's fine. Just know that when we say the prospective church, that's what we are talking about. And so today, as we step into Colossians chapter 1, we're going to look at three primary characteristics of the prospective church, the prospective New Testament church, and how they will apply to our lives. So let's look at those together. Beginning uh, in verse 9, if you would, please, let's just begin reading. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will, and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created, that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body. The church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. The first point we're going to look at this morning, the first element of the prospective church we're going to see is the head, the leader, the head of the prospective church. Who is the head of the prospective church? Now the prayer of Paul and Timothy for this local church at Colossae was a prayer along two lines. In verse 9, we see that they were praying that this church would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and in spiritual understanding. In verses 10 and 11, their prayer was that these believers would not just be filled with this knowledge and understanding, but that they would walk worthy of the Lord. And there were three ways in which Paul prayed that they would walk worthy, and Timothy writing here, that they prayed that they would walk worthy of the Lord. Being fruitful in every good work increasing in the knowledge of God and by being strengthened unto patience and long-suffering with joy. And so this was Paul and Timothy's prayer for this church, that they would walk worthy of the Lord through these elements by by being faithful, by increasing in the knowledge of God, by being strengthened unto patience and long-suffering, that these elements would be recognized in the church. Now this prayer, as we saw in verse 12, rests upon a foundation of faithfulness, excuse me, thankfulness to God the Father for making us meet. That word meet in the Greek literally meaning sufficient or fit. For God making us sufficient to be partakers of the inheritance, in the inheritance of the saints. And so, through our salvation, we are growing unto God and resting upon the thankfulness that God has made us sufficient, fit, meet, Worthy to be made partakers. Now what does this mean for believers? It means that we have been delivered from the power of darkness. Verse 13. It also means that we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Through the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 14. And this is what leads us up to. Our understanding of God. as he, And Jesus Christ as he relates to the church. So let's talk about. This man, Jesus, who has purchased for us eternal life. This man through whom we have been delivered from the power of darkness. This man through whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Now, according to verse 15, this Jesus is the very image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1 verse 3 describes him as the express image of God's person. He is the very image of God in flesh. This Jesus, according to verses 16 and 17, is the firstborn of every creature. What the Bible means when it calls Him the firstborn of every creature is that Christ, both in time and in rank or in superiority, He is supreme over all creation. He is the firstborn, the supreme over all creation. He was before anything that was created and He is greater than anything that was created. He, in time was previous because he created it all. So he, he existed before anything else because he has always existed. And in rank. If you were to rank everything in creation, if you were to take everything that, that is creation, if you were to take all the universe and the planets and the stars and the, the moon and the sun and... and I know the sun is a star. And you were to take all of these things, and you were to take humans, and you were to take animals, and you were to take uh, atoms, and, and cellular structure, and DNA, and all of these things, and you were to rank them as far as their beauty and their, their majesty and creation, and as far as everything that, that, that you could take as far, in characteristics and rank them, Jesus Christ would be at the very top. Because He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the best, He was the first. It's not saying that he was created. We know that Jesus Christ is not a created being. He is above creation. That's what it's saying here in verses 16 and 17. But you know, there's one more attribute that this passage gives in reference to Jesus Christ. Not only did he create all, not only is he above all, but it says that he is the head of the body, the church. He is the head of... Of the body which is the church. And verse 18 goes on to describe that while Jesus is the head of all things by right of his creative authority over them, he is the head of the church by virtue of his power as demonstrated by his resurrection from the dead. In other words, God has claim over his church by right because he created it, God has claim over his church by power and authority. Because he purchased it, because he died on the cross and rose from the grave. First Peter one verses eighteen and nineteen says it this way for as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your empty or vain or empty conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Jesus Christ created all that is, and therefore, because he created it all, has ownership over all that is. But mankind has rejected that ownership and that authority. Now, when God's creation rejected God as creator, he should have just destroyed them. He should have just destroyed us. But he is so merciful that instead of destroying us, he deferred his judgment And gave us the opportunity to willingly submit ourselves again under his authority. And the way that he has chosen, the way that God has ordained man to demonstrate submission to him is through belief on the name of Jesus Christ. We talked about the name already. And so accepting Jesus Christ as Savior and submitting ourselves to God's authority are one and the same. Now this does not mean that God will immediately be Lord over every element of our lives but it does mean that we will recognize his claim over our lives at salvation. May I say that again? I am not saying here that God will immediately become the Lord of every area of our lives or immediately have full control over every aspect of our lives the moment that we get saved. The Bible's not saying that either. However, it does mean that when we get saved, we recognize Jesus Christ's claim over our lives. And there's a distinction there that I hope you recognize. The moment you accepted Jesus as your Savior, you were added to a group of people which God calls the church. It is a group that is called out from mankind with a specific purpose of serving and glorifying God in the presence of other men, as Peter would put it in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. Listen as I read. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now a people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul having your conversation honest among the Gentiles that whereas they speak against you as evildoers they may by your good works which they shall behold glorify God in the day of visitation so God has called us out from among the world God has made us a called out people and elect people of him elect to glorify God And so we are a called out people with the purpose of showing God's glory to the world around us. So Jesus is the one who created the church. He is the reason for the church. And by its very nature, he is the leader of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the prospective church. He is the leader of this body that we call the church. Now, that being said, this leads us right into our second point. What is the structure of the prospective church? The head of the prospective church is Christ. What is the structure of this prospective church? Look with me in verses 20 through 22. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your minds by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Jesus Christ is presented in these three verses as the great reconciler of man unto God. The blood of Jesus Christ, his victory over death, has secured for him the role as mediator between God and man. We looked at this a couple weeks ago in Job, that Jesus Christ is that mediator. Job prayed for a daysman. he said i long for a daysman that could stand between me and god and we recognize that we have that daysman through the blood of jesus christ he is that mediator between us and god reconciling us to god and so all believers men once alienated from god now have direct access to god not only that But verse 21 tells us that we stand in Christ before God, holy, unblameable, and unreprovable. Because when God sees the believers in the church, he sees our head, and our head is Christ. So when God looks at you and when God looks at me, he sees Christ. Therefore, when I stand before God one day, not because of the works that I've done, not because of the things that I've done for Him, but simply by virtue of the blood of Jesus Christ, I will stand before God, and God will look at me, and He will say that I am holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in His sight. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a pretty amazing thought. You think about this past week alone, the things you did, the things you thought, the way you spent your time, and imagine that you will one day stand before God and God will see you as holy, unblameable, un- no blame to be laid, no reproof to be uttered, unreprovable, unblameable in His sight. Well, it won't be because of you. You know that and I know that. It's because of Christ. And so, every believer in this world As a member of God's prospective church, rallies under one man, under one leader. This leader makes our decisions. This leader guides our actions. This leader establishes our doctrine. This leader tells us who we ought to support and who we ought not to support. And this leader is not a pope. This leader is not a pastor. This leader is not an organization. This leader is not a hierarchy. This leader is Jesus Christ. He is our head, the Word of God incarnate. The believer looks to no other authority for doctrine or for practice than the Word of God incarnate. Now, to this end, each believer is called upon to live his or her life led by Jesus Christ through the teachings of the inspired Word of God, which we call the Bible. Can you see now why it is so important that we hold to the doctrine of inspiration of the Word of God and preservation of the Word of God? If the Bible was not inerrantly and infallibly inspired, then we do not have a reliable source through which we can know God and His will. If the Bible is not perfectly and perpetually preserved, then we do not have a reliable source through which we can know God's will and know God Himself. Do you understand? We must have an inspired and infallible Scriptures. And we must have a preserved Scriptures. If we don't have both of them, then we don't have God's Word. If we don't have God's Word, then we have no idea what God expects from us in this life. And if we don't know what God expects from us in this life, we might as well just throw up our hands. Because we can't obey Him if we don't know what He expects. That is why inspiration and preservation are so important now jesus spoke of the structure of the prospective church throughout his ministry so instead of giving my own illustrations of the prospective church i'm going to allow jesus christ to do it for us in john chapter 10 jesus taught us that he is the good shepherd and we are the sheep jesus christ was teaching here about a relationship between himself and his disciples between the head and the body between himself and And those that would follow him. You see, Jesus Christ did not rank the sheep. He did not say that some sheep were better, that some sheep were more powerful, that some sheep were more privileged, that some sheep had greater access to him, that some sheep had special privileges and knowledge above other sheep. He simply states that he is the shepherd and all those that hear his voice are the sheep, the body of Christ. In John 15, Jesus said, I am the vine, ye are the branches. Jesus Christ did not rank the branches. He did not say that some branches were better and more powerful and more privileged than other branches. Now, he did say that some branches bore more fruit than other branches, but they did not bear fruit because they had extra favor from the vine. They bore more fruit because they were fruit bearers. He simply states that he is the vine and all those who believe on His name are the branches. Now, as we combine this with what we have understood from our Ephesians chapter 2 memory work, we recognize that the church is, has the cornerstone of Jesus Christ is founded upon the apostles and prophets, men that God chose to, ins- to write the inspired Word of God. And now it is being fitly framed together through God's disciples. That is the structure that we are looking at The Perspective Church. What I wanted to make clear is this. Jesus Christ is your head. Jesus Christ is God. You are the body. And there is no one between you and Jesus Christ. There is no authority that you must go through. There is no red tape you must cut. There is no man who has authority over doctrine and practice. I get up here every week and it is my responsibility as a pastor of local church, we'll talk about that next week, to reflect Christ's teaching, to take Christ's doctrine and to tell you what it is, to take the word of God and to put it in your hearts and to put it in your minds so that you might know it and you might live it. The day that I begin telling you my own doctrine The day that I begin to tell you what I think is right, aside from what this book says, the day that a man gets up and he says, This is how it's going to be, even though that's not quite what we see in the Bible, is the day he has left the teaching of Jesus Christ and the will of God, and he has fallen into heresy and apostasy. The Word of God is it. This is what we follow, this is what we obey. Because we are the body and who is our head? Is, 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 am I your head? I'm not your head. Is Legacy Baptist Church your head? Legacy Baptist Church isn't your head. Is the Vatican your head? The Vatican is not your head. Jesus Christ is your head. You are Christ's body. You're not my body. You're not the Pope's body. You're not the church's body. You are Christ's body, which is the church. That's the perspective church. Now, Before I move away from this point, I do want to make it very clear that we are teaching on the prospective church this week. Next week, I'll touch upon the local church, which has a little bit of a different authority structure. I do not want to cause you to lose focus this week, but I also don't want to lead you to the false conclusion that the local church and its structure is not necessary because you have the prospective church. It does not work that way. That's not what we see in God's Word. That's not the model we see, and that's not how we ought to live That'll be next week. So come back next week because there's more to learn. Third and final point as we finish. We saw the head of the prospective church which is Christ. The structure of the prospective church. I am the shepherd. You are the sheep. I am the vine. You are the branches which is you to Christ. Let's talk about the fellowship of the prospective church. The fellowship of the prospective church. Look at me in verses 23 and 24 of Colossians chapter 2. Let me start in verse 22 for context. 21 for context, excuse me. And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your minds by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, and made a minister who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake which is the church now Paul states here that there uh, as, as we continue through verse uh, 29 he will be stating two elements of the fellowship of the prospective church the fellowship that every church rallies around as we serve our Lord Jesus Christ and the first Fellowship is that it is a persecuted church. The body of Christ is a persecuted church. Paul mentions here that he is filling up his sufferings for them. Filling up that which rejoices, excuse me, in his sufferings for them and fills up that which is behind in the afflictions of Christ in his flesh for the sake of the body. Jesus Christ taught his disciples in John 15 verses 18 and 19 this, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. He would go on in John 16.33 to say this, In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. John, the the apostle John would echo these words when he wrote 1 John. 1 John 3.13 says this, Marvel not, brethren, if the world hate you. Now, this hatred that we see the world having is not designated by God in the book of John to be a hatred aimed at the church as an organization. Jesus Christ says it's a hatred that is aimed at the church as a people. The world doesn't hate the fact that we're meeting here today or that we do activities. The world hates the content of the message and the testimony of the people as they go out into the world. The world could care less if we meet here, except that when we meet here, we are equipped to go out, and that's what the world doesn't want. They could care less that we believe in God as long as we keep it in our minds and keep our mouths shut. The world hates us because as we live our lives and as we speak... We condemn them in their darkness. See, the world doesn't hate the church as an organization. The world hates the church as a people. It doesn't hate the local church. It hates the prospective church is what I'm saying. Now, you're saying, Pastor, you're kind of splitting hairs here. The local church is a small subset of the prospective church. That's true. So, the world might hate the local church, but it's not hating it because it's local. It's hating it As a church body, as a whole. And as we continue looking at the body of Scripture on this idea of the persecuted church, we recognize that persecution is a means by which we, as God's people, identify with our Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus would say this in Matthew chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master, and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies, Satan, how much more shall they call them of his household? If they hated Christ, certainly they're going to hate Christ's followers. If they hated Christ, they're going to hate you. And so a mark of the prospective church, the fellowship of the prospective church, is a fellowship that surrounds persecution. Throughout the centuries, the disciples of Jesus Christ have found the greatest of persecutions. And in those persecutions, they have found the greatest fellowship with one another and with their Savior. This is why when we look in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 5, the apostles were beaten and threatened that they should never speak the name of Jesus Christ again. And verse 41 says, They departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. Why? Because in that suffering and in that persecution, they found fellowship with their Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered himself shame and persecution. And so the fellowship of the body of the prospective church is a fellowship of persecution. But there's a second element of fellowship in verses 25 and following. Look at it with me. Whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations but now is made manifest to his saints to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The first element of the fellowship of the prospective church is that we are a persecuted church. The second element of fellowship within the, pers- within the prospective church is that we are a hopeful church. We fellowship around persecution, but we also fellowship around hope. The church is what the scriptures call a mystery What this means when Paul speaks of this is that the church was an entity, a body that had not been announced prophetically in the Old Testament, nor could it have been anticipated from previous revelation. So there was nothing in previous revelation that would lend anyone to recognize that there would be a church. There was nothing in previous revelation that would lend an understanding or an expectation that there would be this body of Christ called the church. It was a mystery. However, this mystery, as Paul says here in verse 27, was made known to us. It has been manifest to God's saints in this age that Jews and Gentiles would unite under one body in one body, under one head, excuse me, with one doctrine and one purpose. And through this teaching, every believer has been given a common hope of eternal life and absolute fellowship with the triune God. This is a hope which, regardless of age, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of time, culture, distance, unites the church. Now, it is a fearful hope For we know that on the day that we stand before God, it will be a day of judgment where we give an account to him for that which we did in this life. But it is also a joyful hope. For we know that, as Revelation 21 tells us, God will wipe away all tears from our eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away. whether we are in a church building or whether we are at work or at home or in our families or as individuals or on missions trips or on vacation, this common hope has the ability to make friends and allies out of complete strangers. For we know that there is one God, one Lord and Savior, one salvation, one body in Christ, which is the church. Now, as we continue through the series, what is it that I want you to remember from this week? See, we've got next week and the week after where we're going to continue to talk about the church. So what do you need to remember about this week as we continue to learn about this entire body, which is the body of teaching on the church? Well, number one, because Christ is the head of the prospective church, He is the authority of the church. As a Christian, you are accountable to Christ for your actions. When your life is over, you will not stand before Pastor Wickler and give an account of your life. When this life is over, you will not stand before the saints and the men sitting on the thrones governing the 12 tribes of Israel, the 24 elders in heaven. You will not stand before them and give an account of your life. You will stand before your God and give an account because he is your authority. Number two, the structure of the prospective church means that you have access directly to God through Christ. Your relationship with God revolves around the revealed will of God through the inspired Word of God. It is not dependent upon any earthly organization or earthly association. You do not have to be Baptist to be right with God. You do not have to be Protestant to be right with God. You do not have to have certain affiliations or be under certain organizations to be right with God. You are right with God as you are aligned with the Word of God. That's the structure of the prospective church. Third and finally, the fellowship of the prospective church reminds us that our fulfillment and joy in this life as believers in Jesus Christ is not inherently connected with our physical circumstances, but rather the degree to which we individually align ourselves with the will of God and conform ourselves to the image of our head who is Jesus Christ and so whether we are sitting in a church building without any real persecution to speak of comfortable, the heat's on the lights are on everything's working, we have our electricity and we're doing okay I can put up signs, you can put up signs we can pass out flyers very little persecution, we can have joy in Christ. If tomorrow Christianity were outlawed and we were forced to hide in caves and worship in secret and run from our government and from the people of this land because of our faith, we could have joy because we're aligned with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we have a hope, an eternal hope, of that which is to come. Which, as we recall from Sunday school, is far more real than that which is. As we close, we're going to sing a song after our Sila. And I'd like to read you a few words to this song. It's a Fanny Crosby song. Consider these words as we consider the fellowship, the structure, the head of the prospective church. Take the world, but give me Jesus. All its joys are but a name. But his love abideth ever through eternal years the same. Take the world, but give me Jesus. In his cross my trust shall be till with clearer, brighter vision, face to face my Lord I see. That's the expectation. That's the hope of the prospective church. That's the fellowship which you and I sit and rally around today as we look to our head, Jesus Christ.